years ago, my wife and I uh, bagged a late deal for two weeks in the sun, um, so late that the preparations were um, maximally hurried, okay? We hurried, hurriedly laid out clothes, hurriedly packed our bags, and on the way out the door, hurriedly decided to defrost the freezer. Uh, so I, having responsibility for that, uh, hurriedly binned the contents, hurriedly switched it off, hurriedly and thoughtfully, I thought, laid a towel down to let it drain. But I will never forget the stench that hit my nostrils two weeks later. It was vile. I had left a joint of beef. How could you leave a joint of beef, something that size, in the freezer compartment? It was horrible. It was clearly decomposing. The flies didn't seem to mind so much, but it was deeply offensive, making you want to throw up. And the problem with this smell wasn't just the fact that it was vile, it was the fact that it lingered. I mean, I have never scrubbed anything so hard in all my life as I did that freezer. And of course, some days I would go and I would just, I would smell bleach. I wouldn't really get a, a, a smell of it at all, but regularly, once in a while, it would just come back, especially on a hot day with the sun coming in the kitchen window and the whiff would come from the curtains or something like that. It just lingered. It didn't go away. And I start with that because, uh, and those of you who've been with us through this series in Genesis will start to understand how sin and such ungodliness, even in the lives of people who've had such incredible once-in-a-lifetime type of experiences of God and who He is and interactions with Him, just act in a way that just makes you want to absolutely throw up. It's sin is vile. Sin lingers. These are, it's been a regular lesson that we've learned through the book of Genesis. Um, like a holiday in the sun, there are periodic shards of light. Of course, God is still amazingly, graciously, according to His own faithfulness, interested in the people, not only that we see in here, but the people of this world, for that's why he's interested in the people in this book. He's gracious, he's at work, even as Ashley highlighted for us earlier in his introduction to the service and his prayer, he is graciously preventing humanity actually from being as bad as it could be. It could be worse than this. And still, he's promising a humanity, a future, as good, I guess, as it was in Eden, but ruined by the fall. There are periodic shards of light, but it, most of the time, it very, very honestly stinks of sin and death. It's vile. It lingers. And in Genesis 3, of course, we saw how sin entered the world, and since then, humanity has been in free fall. There are flies on every page, stuff to make you sick as we face up to God's honest truth about humanity's actual state. We've already had betrayal. We've already had sexual immorality. 
We've already had the kind of bare-chested, brute violence of people like Lamech in chapter 4 and so on. Page after page, we've got the heart, the body, the mind, the will. They're all sin-soaked and in God's eyes, deserving of the kind of punishment that even our culture captures when it says things like, they should lock them up and throw away the key. And how true that is in these chapters today. If Genesis 34 and 35 were a movie, it'd be an 18, wouldn't it? If, if it was a track on iTunes, it'd be tagged explicit. And uh, this is, of course, one of the beauties of expositional preaching, walking sequentially, verse by verse, book by book, through books of the Bible. We get to come across passages like this, and the temptation, of course, might be to skip, but actually, they're here for a reason. God wants us to learn, not just from the instructions and the shards of light, but from the vile behaviors. The lessons need to be learned. And uh, as we walk through it today, I want to split it based on the two chapters, 34 and 35, in two main points. One, the stench of sin, and two, the aroma of grace. So let's look at it together. The stench of sin. In chapter 34, uh, I want it to be super clear that there is no one righteous. Uh, not one person in this passage is actually righteous. I mean, let's start with Dinah, the daughter of unloved Leah. And you might be thinking, hang on a minute. She's the victim, isn't she? Well, yes, absolutely she is. And I'll get to that in a second. But we're led in this passage to see Dinah as being, having a, 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 an interest, an unhelpful interest in the people of Canaan. In other words, people not of her own people. And if you call that worldliness, if you like, then Dinah's worldliness is seen as a stench in God's nostrils. Because in verse 1, we've got her pushing at the edges of what was actually allowed. Because God had said, don't mix or intermarry with the peoples of the land and be careful about your relations with them. But here she is slipping out to visit with the women of the land. Now, again, I want to stress that I am not saying that what happens to her is her fault. There are people in societies, even like ours, who would lay such blame at the feet of women. But I am definitely not saying that. Shechem himself is responsible for his actions. All I'm saying is that even these comparatively smaller sins are a stench in God's nostrils. His instructions, whether seemingly small or insignificant or large and wide-ranging, are to be heeded. These are instructions to be obeyed. And we see the same kind of teaching throughout the New Testament, of course. Isn't that what we find? For example, in 1 John 2, 15, do not love the world or anything in the world. Be careful of an unhealthy interest in worldly things that the Bible warns against. But of course, it's Shechem who's the focal point here. Shechem's abuse is clearly a stench in God's nostrils. Here he is, overpowering and doing the unspeakable and utterly humiliating to Dinah. He had no thought for her at all, no thought for her well-being, no thought for her life. He would happily create a lifetime of trauma for a moment of appalling 
one-sided pleasure. It is abhorrent. It is completely unacceptable. It's heart-wrenching. It's devastatingly traumatic for the abused, of course, life-changing. Fear, anxiety, depression, long-standing worry, regret, self-doubt, numbness, helplessness, deep, deep sadness plagues those who experience such vile and atrocious acts. And it ought to make us angry. If anger is something is not right and I'm not happy, this clearly, as we look at it, surely is not right. And yet it was in Shechem's eyes, which is a warning to us all. But actually, there's another level to this wrongdoing. I mean, we don't even often think of unspeakable acts like this theologically. In other words, with what God's Word has to say, I guess. But for a moment, I think we should, because Shechem's act, you see, is not just an offense against Dinah, though it absolutely is. It is an offense against God. Indeed, first and foremost, it is. It's an inversion, really, of two things that God has written into humanity's existence for its good. Two things that are absolutely crucial to his plan for humanity, two things that if messed with, he will absolutely not tolerate. One, the equality of men and women, and two, the purpose of sex. Firstly, on the equality of men and women, the equal dignity and worth of men and women made in God's image is made clear to us in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And the foundation in there is set for all humanity. In other words, it's an inviolable law. It's not changed. If it's not changed even by the fall, it doesn't get changed even by what a government decrees. It stands. It's a foundation set for all humanity, the equal dignity and worth of men and women made in God's image, but Shechem here ignores that. He is a law unto himself and acts like he's worth more than she is. And the stench rises. And secondly, the purpose of sex. God designed sex for marriage between a man and a woman who live in lifelong, loving, exclusive, covenantal relationship. Genesis 2 again sets the pattern. One man leaving, cleaving, and after having committed to loving, lifelong, exclusive, covenantal union with a happily consenting and agreeable wife becoming one flesh. In other words, having sex. The pattern then is leave, cleave, Sex within a healthy marriage. But Shechem here, again, inverts the order. Sex first. Ah, then later thinks about leaving his own family and making something a bit more official, cleaving. Get her for me. I want to marry this woman. 
You see what he's done? On both accounts, in relation to humanity and its dignity, and in relation to sex and God's purpose for it within marriage, he has flipped it. And the stench rises. Now, I want to pause here to speak to anyone, of course, who may have suffered such abuse. Because, and I'm, I would not be surprised if there was, you know, since statistics were recorded from 1971, uh, crimes of this nature have been on the increase year on year on year on year. Never plateauing, never declining. It's desperately sad. One in ten women in Scotland have experienced the kind of things that we see in here. One in five experiencing. One in ten have experienced some kind of abuse. One in five have experienced what's going on in here. Those are horrendous statistics and deeply concerning. And if you have experienced anything like this, I want you to know that in the Bible, God is extremely tender to, towards those who have suffered as victims of horrible acts like this, and so are we as a church family. The broken, the needy, the poor, the afflicted, the sinned against throughout God's word are encouraged to pour out their hearts to God, knowing that he cares. He cares about your, the, the great stress and the great evil, and no matter how long your suffering or how awful the abuse, God is a redeemer, powerfully able to do, uh, to redeem terrible wrongs, and of course, do what is right and bring about justice. As Psalm 147 reminds us, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. I want to encourage you, if you want to, to do one of two things tonight. One, one of three things. One, pray to God. Talk to him about this matter. I guess a topic like this might raise some unwelcome memories or thoughts or emotions. Pray. Maybe you want to pray with someone. There's a prayer team down here. There are a few women down the front tonight after the service who would be happy to just pray with you, even if you didn't want to say anything or talk with you if you did. Or thirdly, there's this great little booklet called Sexual Assault, Healing Steps for Victims. There are five of these, but we can get more. There are five of these on the little table by the connect corner there. If you want to grab one on the way out, please do. If, you, if you're interested in reading about this, don't even think about taking it. It's not for you. Uh, it's for those who really need to take one away. So please do, if you would like to make use of those. Now, maybe you've experienced abuse of some kind, but you're not ready to talk about it. Like I said, uh, I said take away that booklet, but please don't let don't go away thinking this is the only night when you could possibly talk to someone about this. You can get in touch with us if you need to. This also has something to say to us, of course, to those of us who are tempted to do as Shechem did. Maybe not at the extent to which he did it, but even in, a, if I can use the word for want of a better phrase, a, in a lesser way, are tempted to invert 
God's good design for humanity or God's good design for sex within marriage. Uh, I mean, we need to be careful. We do not do that. We don't need to. We can do that in ways that aren't criminal. But let's be clear, sex outside of marriage, and by that I mean even inappropriate touching of anyone, anyone's body who's not your spouse is sin. It's a stench in God's nostrils. We are playing with fire if we do. So whether it's pornography or sending rude photos of yourself to someone or inappropriate relations with someone who is not your spouse, remember the teaching of God's word, 1 Corinthians 6 in particular. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Christ died to redeem you, all of you. Therefore, honor God with your body. There's no one righteous, not even one. Thirdly, in this section, Simeon and Levi's vengeance is also a stench in the nostrils of God, isn't it? You might think, well, it's a good thing here. At least, there's, at least they feel something about it. Well, sure. They do. Verse 7 says they are shocked and furious. Indeed, that's how we should feel at acts like this. But in their anger, they did something very, very wrong. In fact, as I'll show shortly, they almost do the same kind of thing that Shechem did by inverting God's word. I mean, what did they do? They committed treachery by tricking the Shechemites into circumcision. And then they committed murder by massacring way beyond the whole eye for eye thing by massacring all the men of Shechem and plundering the city. Now, be honest about this. Even as verse 25 and 26 describe the ambush and the slaughter and the liberation of Dinah, there is something in us that wants to say, yes, justice. They got what was coming to them. We might well be like the people in Hyderabad, India, recently celebrating the death of four men who had committed a similar crime, dancing in the streets, putting sweeties into the mouths of the police. But the truth is, Simeon and Levi, in a sense, are just as bad as Shechem. Once more, God's word and even God's sign have been inverted. One, they take life that God has given, and in doing so, they look more like Cain or Lamech from earlier on in Genesis. The dignity of human life, again, underscored in the great covenant to Noah as well, has been ignored repeatedly, ongoingly, for three days. For three days they waited, sharpening their swords, plotting their path, figuring out what they were going to do until they walked with cold blood into Shechem. And secondly, they take circumcision. <laughs> circumcision, that sign of promise, that sign of admittance into Israel, even for people who were not Israelites. That sign that God himself gave and used it to weaken their victims. So erasing, not evangelizing, was their goal. And it was shocking. And the stench rises. Romans 12 says, 
Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. There's a time for justice. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heat burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And what about Jacob? Jacob's indifference is also a stench in God's nostrils in this section, isn't it? I mean, his indifference actually to God's instructions, his straightforward instructions actually could be said to be opening the door to these events. Go to Bethel, God said. Well, I might just stop about 20 miles short in Shechem, said Jacob. Partial obedience is still disobedience, and disobedience always has consequences. And then, of course, his indifference to Dinah's plight demonstrated his concern was misplaced. He's having a cozy little chat, in a sense, with Hamor, Shechem's dad, trying to figure out what the plan will be. Not sure how to act. He's waiting for the sons to come back in for the field. He's not sure what to do. He's starting to discuss intermarriage, which God has also forbid. But he's more concerned, even at the end, after Simeon and Levi's massacre is reported to him. He's like, what have you done? You're bringing trouble on me. He's more concerned about the security of his own existence than he was about the violence done to his daughter or the violence done by his sons. He's not exactly, in other words, the model dad. He is without question known to have real favorites in Joseph and Benjamin, those children born to Rachel, his beloved Rachel, but not unloved Leah, like these four, like these were. Dinah, the daughter of unloved Leah, Simeon and Levi, and later Reuben, who sins against him. He is far from being a model dad. His indifference is sinful and is a stench in God's nostrils, and the stench rises. It's vile. And it lingers. So you see, there's no one righteous in this passage. But maybe that's no surprise to you. Because we know that there is no one righteous, not in this world. Sin is this universal deformity of human nature, says G.I. Packer, found at every point in every person. And you might say, well, hang on a minute. I'm not as bad as the guys in there. But no, but we are, actually. I can't help thinking over these last 25 chapters, I keep calling, in my weaker moments, I keep calling Jacob a scumbag. And I keep thinking, he's, he's just, a, I don't like him very much. He's a horrible man. And then I think, well, I guess if my life was written down in these pages and read by Jacob, maybe Jacob wouldn't like me very much. Or you. 
After all, as Romans 3 reminds us, there is no one righteous, not even one. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that, of course, is why we need a righteous one who would come through the line of Jacob, would you believe, through Judah, his son, a true king who would live righteously. There is one who is righteous, and only one. His name is Jesus Christ. And his life, not of partial, but full obedience, maintaining sinless perfection throughout in the face of Satan's efforts and in the face of temptation in an everyday sense, stood firm to the very end and became through his sinless life that unblemished sacrifice, that true lamb of God offered in atonement in the place of sinners like us. People who would put their hope and their trust in Jesus Christ. Who will openly say, I'm a scumbag. I get it, I'm not righteous. And my only hope for a right standing before the God who, as we were singing earlier, is holy, 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 is for a substitute. It's someone else to take my place and say, I died for them. I'll take their sin. Give them my righteous account. That's just what the gospel is. It's what Jesus has done for us. And it's a gift as Romans tells us, a glorious gift. Maybe you're coming face to face with your own sin in these days. Maybe tonight heightens it. It's, a, it's big on these pages. The answer is not to beat yourself up over it or to get really down over it. It's to face up to it, admit it, confess it, and receive the forgiveness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. There is no other way. And indeed, this is the hope, the only hope that there is for sin-soaked humanity who kick up a stink the way that we do, the way that these people do in the nostrils of a God who is holy, to whom sin is vile and offensive. What hope is there? There is hope in His lingering grace. The aroma of grace, as we see in chapter five, uh, 35. Now, if, if chapter 34 is like this two-week-old joint of beef in my fridge, this is like the smell of a morning bakery. It is beautiful. Where God, having not even been mentioned in chapter 34, all of a sudden his name is all over the page. God, 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 El Shaddai, God Almighty, God Almighty. His name is everywhere. And what do we see? He sees God give scumbag Jacob another chance. In verse 1, God tells Jacob to do it again, to go to Bethel. He's already told him that back in chapter 31. But God is so gracious to Jacob in repeating the instruction. Based on all that we know about him, God's holiness and his hatred for sin and our unrighteousness and our love for the things that he hates, isn't it incredible that he still speaks 
Isn't it so gracious of him that he would still move towards people like Jacob and people like us? Indeed, isn't that exactly what we're celebrating at this time of year as we reflect on Christ coming into this world? Jacob had the joy of hearing God speak. We have the joy of celebrating God coming in person to save us. That's why he came. And he doesn't just speak. He calls for obedience to live the way we were made to live when we put our faith and trust in him. And indeed, that's what we see in verses 2 to 7 of chapter 35, where Jacob responds with this obedience. You know, what is it that brings this on for Jacob? It's incredible. I mean, could it be that the Shechemite massacre has made him so afraid that he actually sees his need for God's protection? Maybe. Could it be that the state of his family convicted him that his disobedience before God has had a terrible impact on his family? I'd love it if that was the case, but we just don't know. What we do know is that Jacob gets his nation ready for worshiping the one true and gracious God by getting them to bury their idols, the God replacements, and changing their clothes, symbolically leaving an old way of life behind for a new one. The Apostle Paul, of course, uses similar images in the New Testament to describe turning to Christ through repentance and baptism. James, of course, in the New Testament also uses similar language to what Christians ought to do when they're repenting of their sin. Come near to God and he'll come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Repent. Turn away from your sin in the sure and certain fact of God's welcoming grace. It's incredible. And God not only graciously gives Jacob this other chance, he very graciously repeats the great and big promise that we are desperately hoping is still in play because our salvation depends on it. The future of the promise depends on it, but God proves once more that he is entirely and utterly and unreservedly faithful to his own promise to bring the Savior that's promised in Genesis 3, 15. And to bring the offspring of Abraham of Genesis 15 and the king of Genesis 28 promised to Isaac and again to Jacob, he's still coming, Jesus himself, he's still coming. And for anyone reading this, in those days even, it's a great big few his promises still stand. Verse 10. Look at it with me. God repeats this promise he's made with this slight but important addition. God said to him, your name is Jacob, but you will no longer be called Jacob. Your name will be Israel. So he named him Israel. Now, God has already done that, but he underscores it here. And how kind of him to do so after all we've seen in 34. His promise, God's promise to him is to rehabilitate and reorientate the scumbag of a man and bless him despite who he is. And then verse 11 is followed up with the promise. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. 
Be fruitful and increase in number a nation and a community of nations will come from you and kings will be among your descendants. The land I gave to Abraham and Isaac I also give to you and will give this land to your descendants after you. The promise still stands. God is so faithful, so unbelievably gracious. Descendants, kings, and one king in particular, Jesus of the tribe of Judah, born to Jacob and unloved Leah eventually. Now, life does not get any easier for those who receive such blessings. For Jacob, the 12 tribes would be complete, of course, later in the passage with this birth of Benjamin, the 12th son. But death remains the enemy, as God said it would be, as Rachel's and Isaac's deaths show. Families still experience brokenness, as Reuben serves to show. Actually, you don't really understand much of what's going on with Reuben here, trying to do the unspeakable with his father's concubine, until we get to 49 and realize, okay, of the four sons, the four, first four sons born to Jacob, who effectively should be recipients of the blessing themselves, the first three are annulled. The middle two, Simeon and Levi, are annulled because they've just carried out this massacre in chapter 34. And now Reuben, who's making a power play on his father's inheritance and his father's headship as a family of the family, he's ruled himself out of that now. Guess who's left? Judah. Through whom? The one to whom the blessing will be given. The one through whom Jesus will be referred to as the lion of the tribe of Judah. But the promises of God, even though life doesn't get easier for those who receive such glorious and gracious blessings, same as we experience still the realities of this life and evil in this world, from without and within, the promises of God still stand and they are dependable. They are indeed yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And here's why. Because the promises are made on the basis of God's own name and God's great power. He's God Almighty. That's how he revealed himself to Abraham, powerful enough to make an old couple have a baby. And that's who he is to Jacob, powerful enough to use a messed up family like this to bring the promised child to bear thousands of years later. That's who he is to us, whose sins would ordinarily leave a vile and a lingering stench in the nostrils of God, were it not for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Jesus, who incredibly now uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere throughout the world. For we are to God, amazingly, the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. What grace, despite our sin. What a way for a holy, holy, holy God to act towards undeserving sinners like us. Let's bow our heads.
and let's take a few minutes, a moment to pray. Personal prayers of response into ourselves, whether it's confession of sin, whether it's asking for help. Please use all we've talked about in this passage tonight to fill your prayers in these moments before we sing.